Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So the Park Service says you can walk across it if it's low enough. You don't have to take the rowboat. You can basically just walk across. But before anybody wants to save the $5 rowboat fee and do this, the website also warns that the bacteria levels in the river fluctuate. So if you do walk, it says be sure to keep your head above water. Don't do it if you have any open sores or cuts. I'm out. (laughs) And I don't even have open sores or cuts. I know. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions about the national parks, road trips, hiking, camping, backpacking, gear, relationships, and pretty much whatever anyone wants to ask us. In this episode, we're answering a question about our favorite hikes in Big Bend National Park in Texas. We'll also share our thoughts about which parks are good for preteens, as well as some budget-friendly ways to visit the parks. We'll throw out a few suggestions about apps you can use while planning a road trip and to store information about hiking trails. Plus, most importantly, how to keep your lunch cold in your backpack when you're out on a day hike. Because food's the most important thing when you're hiking, right? Always. Yeah. Okay, so stay tuned. Lots of exciting mailbag questions coming up next. All right, before we dive into mailbag, we wanted to mention a couple of road trip not issues. They're not issues. They could be issues. Tips and tricks? Tips and tricks for road trips that have come to our attention recently. The first one is we got a DM from someone who was traveling with bear spray in their car on a long road trip, and they had left it in their car during a very hot day, and the bear spray exploded. Yeah, and we've heard this before. This is, isn't is just an isolated incident. Uh, matter of fact, it, at least several times people have told us about situations where the canister, sometimes it explodes and goes all over the car inside. Sometimes it leaks out. But yeah, if, if it's sitting in the direct sun, it can just spontaneously start leaking out. Yeah, well, and the manufacturers say that the aerosol can can burst at temperatures above 120 degrees. And, you know, in a hot car in the summer, it can get up to 180 degrees in a short amount of time. Yeah, you don't want that to happen. You don't want the inside of your vehicle covered in bear spray. That would that would be bad for your trip, wouldn't it? That would be very bad. So not only are you supposed to keep your bear spray where the sun doesn't shine, you're supposed to... Wait, you're supposed to do what? (laughs) I wondered if you would catch that. (laughs) Keep it out of the direct sun. You should absolutely have it enclosed in something else. And one of the things we've started doing, we have a small lunchbox-sized cooler. 
it's just big enough to hold a couple of beers. It's also big enough to hold our bear spray in it. And the good thing about having it in this little tiny cooler is, one, it'll protect it from the heat, but it also, if it does explode, it would contain it pretty much inside that cooler. Right. And if you're flying somewhere and you're buying bear spray when you arrive, if you don't want to go to the expense of also buying a cooler to put it in, you can just wrap it in a towel, wrap it in a shirt, wrap it in something, put it under the seat. That will help protect it as well. That's right. Okay. So that is the tip for the day about traveling in the summer with your bear spray. (laughs) We have another tip though. And unfortunately, this has become a summer routine for us, is checking for wildfires before we go on a trip. There are a few websites out there that will show you where the active wildfires are. The one that I use, it's a government site. It's fire.airnow.gov. And we will put a link to that on our show notes if you don't want to write that down. If you go on that site, it'll show you the entire country. You can zoom into either where you are or where you're going. It tells you the active fires. It'll tell you the fires that are already at. It'll tell you the status of the fire, how contained it is, when it happened. Uh, Some of the bigger fires, it'll give you the history and, and how it's developed and what they're currently doing. A lot of times it'll tell you if there are roads closed that are close to it. Uh, The other thing that this website does is it taps into the air quality sensors all over the country. You know, fire might be 200 miles away, but the smoke is blowing towards an area and affecting the air quality. So you can get a, a current air quality reading. So in the summertime, I look at that literally twice a day. Well, yeah, it's especially helpful if you're camping, right? Because not only are you out in it during the day, but you're out in it at night as well. So I think, as you said, not just where the fire is, but the air quality in general, I think is important to know when you're traveling around in the summer. So there you go. Check fire.airnow.gov before you go to an outdoor place to check for fires and air quality. Yes. Thank you, Matt. You're you're welcome, Karen. (laughs) All right. We have a lot of great mailbag questions today, so we should probably get started. Karen, what's our first mailbag question? Okay. This one comes from Gigi. Love that cute name, Gigi. And she wrote, my mom and I will be driving from Boston to San Francisco in December. Wow. I know. That is some road trip. We are avid road trippers and love visiting the parks. We're planning on hitting Mammoth Caves, Hot Springs, Big Bend, Guadalupe Mountains, Carlsbad Caverns, White Sands, and Saguaro. Likely, we will only be spending about a day in each park. We are big hikers and can do longer 10-mile hikes. What would you recommend? Wow, in all those parks? You're thinking this is going to take the rest of the entire episode, aren't you, Matt? No, uh... (laughs) We're going to focus on hikes in Big Bend, but one thing we should mention, Guadalupe Mountains, the peak there is, I mean, it's over 8,000 feet. So in December, it could be snow. Right. So if you plan, if you want to hike in the Guadalupe Mountains, they, they also have lower elevation trails, but they're going to have snow in those mountains. Yeah. You could check on McKittrick Canyon. That was a beautiful hike that we loved as well. And one more note before we get started on Big Bend, you know, you mentioned the caves, Mammoth and Carlsbad. There are hiking trails above the caves uh, in both those parks. We have never done them because we are focused on the caves. So, you know, check with a ranger if you want to hike outside, but we would highly recommend that you do the cave tours in these parks because that's what they're known for. And of course, at Hot Springs, you got the historic bathhouses and more important than that, the brewery. 
the only brewery in a national park. There you go. So definitely check those out. But let's talk about Big Bend National Park in Texas. Such a great park. So first of all, we're going to organize these by area of the park. So we'll talk about the mountain hikes, uh, the, the hikes in Chisos Mountains. And, and so in that district is a lodge, Chiso Mountains Lodge, and it's at 5,400 feet. So again, in December, it could be considerably cooler up there. Mm-hmm. Before we visited, I always thought Texas was flat. I had no idea that there were mountains, and it was such a great surprise when we got there. We had uh, rooms at the Chisos Mountain Lodge. To go from the river that runs through the Rio Grande is at about 1,800 feet of elevation, and then you drive up, up, up. Like you said, Matt, the Chisos Mountain Lodge is at 5,400 feet, but then Emory Peak up there is at 7,800 feet. So it's a varied landscape all the way from desert to mountainous region. And when you're hiking up there, I mean, it's it's treed and it feels like you're in the mountains. It's beautiful. So a couple of great hikes up in the Chisos Mountains area. One of them is the Window View Trail. Now, this is really easy. It's a 0.3-mile paved path, so a third of a mile. And it leads to a view of the window, which is basically what it says. It's a cutout in the mountains where you can look through, and it's this incredible view. And this is one of the best sunset spots in the entire park. And there's also the Window Trail. Not to be confused with the window view trail, where you can hike all the way to the window. Now, this is, you know, five and a half mile trail. It's, I would say, moderate, moderately strenuous. Uh, it's mostly a downhill hike to the window's pour off. And a pour off is essentially a waterfall that's usually dry. And then, of course, you need to know you're going to hike that distance back getting out of there. So the, the elevation gain is on your way out. And it's about, if I'm remembering correctly, that dry pour-off, it's about a 200-foot drop down when you're looking over the edge of that pour-off. Yeah, you got to be careful when you get close to the edge of that pour-off. You you just kept marching right to the edge. I, I wanted to have one of those things, you know, where they have the toddlers in the little harness with a leash, <laughs> a tether, because you were getting awfully close to the edge, and it was making me nervous. And because water has come through this pour-off for so many centuries, it's uh, it's like a smooth, polished... It's pretty slick. Slick. Yes. 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 So you got to be careful there. Yeah. You know, I just saw, I was looking at these trails on the Big Bend website the other day, and I was surprised to see that both of these window trails are closed. You know why, Matt? Uh. <laughs> Tell us, Karen. I think you'd be surprised at this due to bear activity on the trail. Wow. I know. We never saw any bears when we were there. Uh, We didn't see any bears, and we weren't really thinking about bears. No. Do you think the bears will still be there in December when they go on their trip? I don't know, but I'll tell you what else you need to watch out for, although it's unlikely you will see one, are mountain lions. We did know about the mountain lions because that little visitor center there up in the Chisos Mountains region, they have a full-size stuffed mountain lion in the visitor center, and uh, they make sure people are aware. They said your chance of seeing a mountain lion in that region is very rare, but the chance of one of them seeing you is pretty high. And also, for anyone listening who is going to be hiking up there with small children, they also recommend that 
small children hike in the middle of the group between the parents. So have an adult in the front, have an adult in the back, and do not, on these trails up there, do not let your small children run ahead of you or lag behind you. You need to be with a big person. Right. The mountain lions have a tendency to go after the smallest person in the group. It would be very rare to have a mountain lion attack, but you wouldn't want it to happen even once. Yeah, I was worried about running into a mountain lion on the next trail we want to mention, which is the Lost Mine Trail. And it's about five miles, 1,200 feet of elevation gain. You are going up to some incredible views. But for some reason, I was nervous on this hike about mountain lions. Yeah, and I do remember that it was pretty treed. Yes. I mean, we were we were in the forest mm-hmm. a lot, and then when we got to the top, there's then a rock outcropping, a lot of scrambling around. I don't mean like you have to scramble to get to the top, but there's opportunities to scramble around and find different perches up there, and you have incredible views of the park from there. Yes, that's a fantastic hike. Now, if you're looking for an easier hike up there, there's the Chisos Basin Loop. It's 1.8 miles. It's listed as easy. And a harder one is the Emory Peak. Now, we haven't done this one. It's a 10.5-mile round trip, and it has 2,500 feet of elevation gain, and that, take, that takes you to the peak. Yes, I would love to do that hike. We, we need to put that on the list for next time. Okay, so those are some trails in the mountain region. There are others, um, so you can check those out on the park website or an app like All Trails. But let's move on to the desert hikes, Karen. Yeah, one of the desert hikes I really liked was the Chimneys Trail. And it's about five miles round trip. And when you get out to kind of the turnaround point, there are petroglyphs to be found. And it was kind of like a treasure hunt, wasn't it, looking for the petroglyphs? I always like looking for petroglyphs because, like you said, it is uh, like a treasure hunt to find them. And it's super cool to just to realize that people four, five, six hundred years ago were carving these into the rocks. I mean, that's cool that people were living there and and this is one of the ways they were they were communicating. They were also uh recording some of their their history or just, I don't know, making art yeah. on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Another one that we really enjoyed was the Grapevine Hills Trail to Balanced Rock. It's about 2.2 miles round trip. Now, the thing about this one is you do have to drive six miles on a rough road. And I believe it's gotten more rough since we've been there because the Park Service website says it requires, and requires is in bold, a high clearance vehicle. They said, do not try this in a minivan or a just a regular passenger car. And when you get to the balance rock, this is a fun thing that Karen made me do, <laughs> is you want the person you're with to pose as if they're holding the balanced rock, like with their hands over their head, um, and then you take a picture of it, and right. so you can send it to your friends and stuff. But when you do this, make sure you have the person taking the picture Try lots of different angles and uh, make funny faces when you take the photo so that it really becomes fun for the person taking the picture. Now, do you see what a great memory that is, Matt, that we made together? Look how you remember it all these years later. And you're smiling and you're so happy about that. I remember after all of that, we still didn't have one that was even close. It looks so stupid. Yeah, let's, let's just go to the Eiffel Tower and like 
act like you're leaning against it or something. <laughs> yeah, hey, that sounds pretty good right about yeah. now. Uh, one more we'll mention in the desert hike category that we liked was the Upper Borough Mesa Pour-Off. That one was about four miles round trip, and you do come to this very cool dry pour-off again, and you're at the top of it looking down. But Karen, we're not done yet. No, we're not. We need to talk about river hikes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the first one we're going to mention is Boquillas Canyon. Now, this trail runs along the river. It's 1.4 miles round trip. And it's on the U.S. side of the river because, of course, once you cross the river, you're in Mexico. Now, when we visited in 2010, you could not cross the river and go into Mexico. The border was closed. Now, it was a big no-no back then. Mm -hmm. You weren't supposed to swim in the river. You weren't supposed to cross into Mexico. Um, But they have changed all that. And now they have facilities so that you can actually cross the river. They have a official border crossing. It's it's not open every day of the week. So you got to know this. Right. So, Gigi, when you're there in the winter, this border crossing is open Wednesdays through Sundays from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, it's very important for everyone to know you can't cross over unless you have a passport. It is just like crossing a border. They check your passport. You know, they do all that on both sides. So Because it is crossing a border. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It looks so simple because Mexico is so close, but you definitely do have to have a passport. Yeah. Now, there's, uh, there's a couple of ways to get across the river. You can go in a small rowboat, mm-hmm. right? And how does this work, Karen? Because you did the research. But people on the Mexican side, they, they row their rowboats over, and then for five bucks, they'll ferry you across. That's right. And welcome you to their country. Yes. They really want U.S. visitors to come over to their Boquillas village and, and spend money and visit them. So, yes, they'll ferry you across for $5. And then once you get there, it's... It's a half a mile walk to the village, but if you pay another fee, you can ride a bro or a horse, or I think they also have some vehicles you can ride in. So how much fun would that be? Yeah, I I, I would like to see a picture of these burros first. <laughs> Because I know what I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get the little kid burrow, the one where my feet are dragging. Burrow's gonna be trotting along the half mile. I'll be carrying the burrow back with me. Uh huh. We so have to do this. It'll be so much fun. Yeah. Now the park's website does say that. If the river is low, and you know, the Rio Grande River there is not very wide. Usually it's pretty shallow. So the Park Service says you can walk across it if it's low enough. You don't have to take the rowboat. You can basically just walk across. Yeah, I I don't know when that would be. Maybe middle of summer is when it would be. But when we were there, uh, it was running pretty high. And it was... And fast, right? There was a current. Late October. Right. So I I don't know. Maybe it does slow down. Seemed swift when we were there. But before anybody wants to save the $5 rowboat fee and do this, the website also warns that the bacteria levels in the river fluctuate. So if you do walk, it says, be sure to keep your head above water. Don't do it if you have any open sores or cuts. I'm out. And I don't even have open source or cuts. <laughs> I know. Also says keep young children out. Yeah, I guess upstream there are some sewage issues, some open sewers that are dumped into the Rio Grande. I, so. I do not want to bring sea monkeys back <laughs> home 
or anywhere. <laughs> so maybe take the rowboat on that one. But um, if this sounds good, Gigi, if this sounds fun, bring your passport and also bring cash. Um, they accept U.S. dollars in Bokias. And I guess once you get over there, there are a couple of restaurants. There's a church. There are people selling uh, handmade Mexican crafts and all that. So I think we should do it, Matt, next time we're down there. And they let you back in the country, though? They let you back in the country. But, you know, that border crossing closes at 4. So I don't know what happens if it's 5 o'clock and you not get back over. I'm sleeping under the burrow, (laughs) (laughs) waiting for that border crossing to open. If it's a Sunday, then I'm waiting three days until Wednesday comes around. I know, exactly. So, yeah, make sure um, you read up on all the details on the website. Yeah, I'm getting back to the crossing early. I'm not waiting until 345. Five. <laughs> All right. So, what other uh, river hikes further west along the Rio Grande, and, and it's kind of a whole different set of roads to get there, is the Santa Elena Canyon that has a whole different feel. You cannot cross the border, or you're not supposed to cross the border there. No, there is a trail there that's about 1.7 miles round trip. And this might be one of the most scenic spots in the entire park. Uh, The canyon walls come down and they narrow as the river heads through them. So it's absolutely beautiful. So I would recommend anybody and everybody who goes to Big Bend to go see this uh, Santa Elena Canyon. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful little canyon to see. So, Gigi, I hope that you have more than one day to spend in Big Bend because, you know, it takes a while to get down there and there are so many things to do. So if you can find some lodging and spend two days and do some of these hikes, it will definitely be worth it. Thanks, Gigi. Hope you and your mom have a great road trip. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. So that's Big Bend. Um, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, this question comes from Andy, and he wrote, We are 40 years old with a 12-year-old boy and a 9-year-old girl, and we just got back from a two-week road trip to Monument Valley, Canyonlands, Arches, Goblin Valley, Dead Horse, Bryce, Estes Park in Rocky Mountain, and North Rim and Zion. <laughs> Lots of parks. Uh, the one thing I noticed is that some of the parks are, in my opinion, better for kids than others. And most, if not all, of the parks we visited will be going back to when the kids are older so we can do more of the harder hikes. So my question is, do you have any recommendations on which parks would be better for younger kids where they'll be able to do the bulk of what the park has to offer? Yeah, I think this is a common issue with people who have kids, mm-hmm. you know. So early years, you see them in the backpack on their parents' back. Uh, yeah, 
But then they get older and they're no longer just along for the ride. So you do have to take into account what's doable for them as well as what's fun for them. I think parents these days feel a lot of pressure to take their kids to the national parks because, you know, they don't want their kids to miss out. But the reality is, is like you said, Andy, not all of these parks are fun for kids. And there are a lot of parks that have a lot of driving and you're looking out the window. And while we love that, and we love to pull up a chair and sit and watch the sunset, that's not fun for nine and 12 year olds, right? One thing, we're going to talk about a few specific parks, but... One thing, I think as kids get older, they need to be more entertained. They need more fun. They need some stimulation. So a couple just general things to think about would be guided rafting trips, horse pack trips, llama trips. You know, when you book your lodging, maybe stay in a teepee or a yurt or a covered wagon, those kinds of things that are are unique and novel and fun for kids. We have been on some guided trips, and the guides who it's their profession – they're accustomed to dealing with preteens and teenagers, and the the experiences we've had in seeing these folks is they're really good with kids and engaging them in activities and befriending them and showing them unique places because a lot of times these guides have a lot of energy themselves and and so so that would be something to look into yeah that reminds me matt when we did the middle fork rafting trip last summer one of our boatmen was telling us about they did an entire trip for boy scouts and those boys were about 12 years old and the thing that they the boy scouts loved that they would do once uh once they arrived at camp is they would find cliffs and they'd jump off the cliffs into the river and they would do that over and over and over again with the guides but yeah, that's exactly right. You know, these these guides are professionals and they know what kids like to do. Yeah. So th- so those are some ideas. The first park we want to mention, and this doesn't require a lot of explanation, is Yellowstone. You know, Yellowstone is a place where families go to make memories. The thermal features and geysers have easy boardwalk trails. And of course, you've got all the wildlife in the park. Yeah, we even took our kids on a rafting trip down the Yellowstone River that started in Gardner. They loved that. Yeah, what about the New Mexico parks? You got Santa Fe. Well, the town of Santa Fe is, is fantastic just by itself, but you have Bandelier that's not too far away, also Casa Katui, White Sands down in the south, where you can rent sleds at the visitor center, uh, sled down the dunes, uh, Smoky Bear Museum in Capitan, New Mexico. That would be a fun place. And also you have Carlsbad Caverns. Yes. And at Carlsbad Caverns, once they start up the cave tours again, which hopefully will be soon, you know, book one of the more adventurous tours. We did the lower cave tour where you rappel down this hill and then you have to wear a headlamp because there's no electricity. It's very adventurous. And I think preteens would love it. And then also just a note, depending on what month you're there, uh, you could see the bat flight program. Program. The bats coming out of the cave is cool. So New Mexico is a great spot to take your kids. And another interesting place that's great for kids, even older kids, is Black Hills, the Black Hills of South Dakota. I, I mean, you got Custer State Park. Uh, there's a great bison herd there. If you're driving through the, the park, the wildlife loop, you got Mount Rushmore, which, you know, kids should see. Uh, a couple of caves, Wind Cave and Jewel Cave. So there there you go. You can do mm-hmm. cave tours. And, and also not too far away is the Badlands. 
Yeah, and also we haven't been there, but we've heard a lot about in Hot Springs, South Dakota, which is very close to this area. There's the Mammoth Site and Museum, and people said that's an amazing place to take kids. And of course, you have the world's largest smoky bear statue in Hill City. So the Black Hills is made for kids, all kinds of fun activities and rock shops and um, just a million things to do. So you know another place, Karen, that uh, preteens and teens would like in the east is New River Gorge National Park in West Virginia. Yes. We went there last last fall. Yes, that is actually a great place to take kids. There are several adventure resorts near the park that provide lodging and all kinds of fun activities. So I'm just going to mention briefly two of them. One is called Adventures on the Gorge. They take families on whitewater rafting trips on the Upper New River or the Gauley River. They also have a zip line trip through the trees there. They have guided rock climbs. You can hike, swim, kayak, mountain bike, stand up, paddleboard, play laser tag, obstacle courses, fishing, all of this at Adventures on the Gorge. Plus, they have cabins you can stay in, they have campsites where you can camp, and they have some dining options. So basically, it's a one-stop vacation. You book through them, you stay there, and they will entertain you and your kids for days. You can just leave your kids there. <laughs> you can leave your kids I'm there, sure. have them do all that stuff, come back a week or two later, or at yeah. the end of the summer. Yeah, <laughs> they, they will be river guides by the end of the summer. That's right. Uh, another one that I think is very similar that we've heard good things about is Ace Adventure Resort. Same type of thing. So take a look at those two options because I think it would be a blast for your kids. They could also do the bridge walk. Do they allow kids? What's the age limit on bridge, I'm not bridge walk? sure on the bridge walk, but definitely look into that. You know, we talked about that on our New River Gorge podcast episode. I would guess a 12-year-old could go. I'm not sure about a 9-year-old, but but check that because that was really fun. And and there was some good hiking options for kids. Not too difficult. Yeah, the, the trails there in the park are not super strenuous. Yeah, Endless Wall is one that comes to mind. Yeah, so New River Gorge is great. And then the last one we wanted to mention is, how about taking your kids to Hawaii in the summer? How about taking us to Hawaii? <laughs> In the summer. We're available. <laughs> we are. Maybe we could babysit your kids. But anyway, if you go to Maui, you can visit Haleakala National Park. And as we mentioned in that episode, there are two locations. You go up to the top of the mountain and you can hike in the crater. And then you can go back down to the other district and you can hike to waterfalls. So two completely different areas, really fun for kids. And it is cheaper in the summer than winter, springtime. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in the summer you can get some deals. I keep getting emails from Alaska Airlines about flight deals to Hawaii. It makes me want to just pack up and go. So I think that uh, I think summer is a lot more reasonable. And look, then you've got you could spend days at the beaches of Hawaii, right? That would be a great vacation for you and your kids. So those are some suggestions, what to do with your kids. We think it's great, Andy, that you're looking for parks that they'll enjoy as much as you will. Okay, this next question is actually the continuation of a question from an earlier mailbag. Yes, from our friend Kike in Spain. He wrote... Just wanted to thank you for your amazing work and for making me so eager to visit the national parks, hopefully sometime soon. Could you provide us with some tips for visiting the national parks on a budget? On a budget. Well, it's getting harder to 
travel in the U.S. on a budget. But one of the things you could do uh, when you get here is buy the America the Beautiful Pass. Now, it's $80, and it gets you into all the NPS sites and other federal lands for an entire year. It's a multi-agency pass. So this works if you're in a national forest that requires a fee. So it's it's really a great deal. And if you're going to, really, if you're going to three or more parks, the pass is going to pay for itself. And you can buy that at the very first national park you visit. Okay, so since you'll be flying from overseas, obviously you have to buy an airline ticket. And once you get here, you'll need a rental car and you have to pay for gas. So those are kind of non-negotiable prices. You know, it, it will be whatever it will be for the month that you come. So really the only place where you can try to save money is on lodging and on food. Right. Now you can, on lodging, one of the things you can do is you could get a larger rental car you know, like an SUV or something bigger and, you know, sleep in your car. And this, this is a thing that people are doing a lot of these days. You don't have to necessarily do it every night, but it's, you know, a few nights, it saves you quite a bit on lodging. So, you know, you'd want to get one where that back seat folds down, obviously, so it's big enough for your body. And if you're traveling with a companion, then, you know, you buy, when you get here, you buy a blanket and a pillow. You don't need much since you're just visiting. Now, a couple of things about that. You cannot just sleep in your car wherever you feel like it. The parks have been cracking down on that because a lot of people at the popular trailheads would go the night before, sleep in their car so they could get up and be the first ones there. So now you'll see in a lot of these trailhead parks, lots and other places in the park that there are signs posted that said you may not sleep in your car your car cannot be here overnight so you do have to know where you can sleep and there are some apps that can help you find places to camp in whatever area you happen to be in so the number one app for the van life people is called the Dirt app, and Dirt is spelled D-Y-R-T. So check that out now. Obviously, if you're planning ahead, you could get um, a site at an established campground, and that's nice because then you probably have showers available. You know, you might have um, restrooms with flush toilets. And another thing that Kike could do, Matt, is dispersed camping in some of these parks. Right, and you have to check out, you know, make sure you know what areas you can disperse camp. Uh, a lot of the national forests, uh, some of the BLM lands, Bureau of Land Management lands, you can. Um, if you can, you should try to find a ranger station or a visitor center in the area that can tell you where you can disperse camp. Essentially, in the areas where it's allowed, anywhere you can pull your car off the road is available for dispersed camping. So, you know, you could do this for, say, two nights and then get a hotel room for a night and shower and sleep in a bed and then sleep in your car for two nights, you know. So that that's one way to save money. And another way to save money would be on your food budget. Yeah. So when you get there, you could buy a cheap cooler and head to a grocery store. If you buy snacks, beverages, maybe breakfast or lunch items, you'll save a ton of money. And then if you want to, you could spend more of your food budget eating dinner at a restaurant. And the other thing we started doing when COVID hit, because all of the restaurants closed down for indoor dining and you could only do takeout. So when we would go to the parks during that two-year stretch, we would get takeout from the restaurant. We would drive into the park. We, we had our camp chairs. We would sit and we would you know, eat the takeout. We had beers with us. And we noticed that that actually saved a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. And, and things like, and I know we joke about this a lot, but I mean, a loaf of bread, a jar of peanut butter, a jar of jelly, 
I mean, just making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunches, you know, saved a ton of money. Right. So I hope that helps, Kike. One more thing that we we didn't mention when we were talking about sleeping in your car. You know, you didn't mention which parks you're going to in which season. So just remember that if you're in the Utah parks in the summer, it's going to be brutally hot. And of course, when you sleep in your car, you're not going to have air conditioning throughout the night. And if you're somewhere in the mountains at a high altitude and it's spring or fall, it could be really cold and you're not going to have heat. So something to think about would be the temperature of where you're going, whatever month you're you're visiting the parks. Hopefully some of those suggestions would help you figure out how to see the parks on a budget. That's right. Hope you can get over here soon. Thanks for your question. All right, Karen, what's up next? Okay, this one comes from Julie, and she wrote, We are going to Acadia for a week in September. We plan on packing our lunches each day in our Osprey bags. How do you typically pack a lunch to keep it cold while not smashing your sandwich or getting condensation all over your backpack? Okay, so you're going to smash your sandwich. (laughs) That is a given. It actually doesn't taste any different. (laughs) No, no. Like we just mentioned, one good food to take when you're hiking or or for like lunch is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because if you don't have a way to keep it cool, it's not going to spoil on you, right? I mean, like you could take tuna salad with you if you wanted, um, but uh, that's... That has a whole different (laughs) level of risk that I'm not willing to take. Yeah. When we wrote Dear Bob and Sue about our parks journey, you know, 12 years ago, we wrote about all the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that we took with us. And we and there were some reviews on Amazon where people said, I can't believe how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches these people ate. And that was the very reason because we were worried about refrigeration out on these, you know, hot hikes and that sandwich just baking in our backpack. Yeah, and and a lot of times if it's it's buried in your backpack, a lot of times even in the summertime, I'll take an extra shirt or even sometimes a puffy because hiking up to elevation, it could be cool when you get to the top, and so I can wrap food in that, and it'll it'll stay you know pretty much won't get too hot wrapped up like that. But but Julie, technology is a wonderful thing, and there are some new options out now. So we found some foil thermal sandwich bags on Amazon. You can buy a five-pack for $15, and they're reusable. It's an insulated bag. It's waterproof. It has an easy slide um, closure. So it's basically like a big sandwich bag that's made out of an insulated foil. Yeah, so you can use those. They're not hard-sided. It's not going to help you with the smashing, right? right? But, I mean, there are things like little Tupperware card containers the size of a sandwich mm-hmm. that you could get. But that's that's not going to help you with the keeping it cool part. So what we do is with that insulated bag, we just make sure that we put our sandwich in the very last thing in our pack so it's on top and then it has a better chance of not getting smashed. One more note, we would suggest that if you do get these um, thermal sandwich bags, we double bag. So put a regular baggie around your sandwich, then put it in an insulated bag and it keeps the bag cleaner um, so you don't have to wash it as often. Yeah, or just eat Cheez-Its for for lunch. (laughs) Yes. And then you don't have to worry. Although I do have to worry about them getting smashed. Those really get smashed. I know. I've now been taking the entire box because I have a little bit bigger day pack 
and there's a spot where the the, the whole box fits. Yes, so, it's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. So you got that going. Yeah. For so Julie, we'll put the link to these particular um, sandwich bags on our show notes, but there are other options out there too that are good for that. All right. Thank you for that question. Next up, our question comes from John in Maryland, and he wrote, My wife and I will be taking a road trip on the Pacific Coast Highway from San Francisco to Santa Barbara this September to celebrate our 28th anniversary. We will be flying round trip to the San Francisco airport and plan on spending four to five days on the Pacific Coast Highway to see the highlights. I would like to incorporate a few national parks after this road trip. Can you suggest some itinerary options as we travel back from L.A. to San Francisco? I'd like to visit Channel Islands, National Park, Sequoia, and Kings Canyon for the remaining three to four days. We'll skip Yosemite since we've already been there. Okay. We've kind of done that before, haven't we? Mm -hmm. We have. And we kind of mapped it out for you day by day here. The first day since you're starting in Southern California, you could go to the town of Ventura, which is just north uh, of L.A. on, on the coast. And from there, you can day trip to... The Channel Islands. Right. It takes you to what? Santa Cruz Island? Yeah. Well, there are different boat options depending yeah. on which ones you want to see. Yeah. So if you want to go to Channel Islands, basically that's day one. Right. It's a full day. So moving on. So day two. Now you're going to drive from Ventura to Sequoia National Park via the General's Highway. Now here's the thing we just wanted to mention. When I was mapping this on my phone to see the distance, if you just put in Sequoia National Park... The pin will take you to some random spot along the General's Highway, which is in the middle of nowhere. So, and this is just general advice. When you're mapping any place to a national park, you want to put in a specific destination in the park, not just the park, because otherwise you have no idea where it's taking you. So in this case, I put in Wuxachi Lodge as the destination because that's in the heart of Sequoia, where some of the other things are that you'll want to see. So from Ventura to Wuxaxi Logs, that's about a four and a half hour drive. So that would take about a half a day. So it leaves you the other half a day to visit. I would visit the General Sherman Tree. I loved hiking the Giant Forest Loop. Uh, also Morro Rock, which has great views at the top. Pretty much stairs all the way up, but it's not that long. So it's pretty much everyone can do that. And over by Morro Rock is the drive-through tree. Mm-hmm. You got to drive through the tree. Yeah, that's very cool to see when you're in Sequoia. So that's day two. Now you could stay, if you can get reservations, you could stay right there at Wuxachi Lodge. It's very nice. Or if you want to now drive into Kings Canyon, which is adjacent, it's still a 45-minute drive from that point to the lodging option in Kings Canyon, which is John Muir Lodge. And we just stayed there, what, like two months ago? Yeah, it was a nice little lodge. Now the next day, so this would be your third day, you could visit the General Grant Grove, which is basically across the highway from the lodge, so you're right there, and then continue on that road into Kings Canyon to the Cedar Grove area. John Muir said it rivals Yosemite Valley in its beauty. Just the drive itself is spectacular, and then there are some great hikes back there. Right, right. Lots of different hikes, depending on how far you want to go and how strenuous you like your hike to be. Now, there is another lodge back there in Cedar Grove called the Cedar Grove Lodge. So again, if you wanted and you could get a room, you could stay there or you could drive back out of the canyon and spend the night again at the John Muir Lodge. If neither of those are an option, as you take Highway 180 
to the west out of the park. The first big city you're going to hit is Fresno, and there are, of course, a ton of lodging options there. Yeah, and if you search for lodging in Fresno and you see the, the town of Clovis come up, that's that's just a suburb of Fresno, and that's mm-hmm. that's a little bit uh, east of Fresno and closer to the parks, and, and we've stayed in Clovis a couple times. Right. So that's day three. That would be a full day. Yeah, and then from there, you know, on, on day four, you're driving back to the San Francisco airport, and it's going to be about a four-hour drive from the entrance of Kings Canyon National Park. But of course, that's just getting you to the airport. That doesn't take into account returning your rental car. The hour and a half to two hours ahead of time, you need to be at the airport and all that kind of stuff. You know, you'll have to just see how this fits into your other days. If this itinerary is too long and you need to cut something out, we'd suggest saving Channel Islands for another time. I feel like there is a sense of urgency for people who want to see the giant sequoias. You know, the wildfires that raged through there last year had a devastating effect on many of them. Yeah, and as we saw in May when we drove into the park through the south entrance, climate change, drought, and bark beetles have been killing a lot of the other trees throughout the park. Yeah, it was pretty devastating to see. And it's totally up to you. We love the mountains. We love those big trees of those parks. And so those those are the parks we would choose. But, you know, some people like, they like the ocean. Depends on what your preference is. Right. So hopefully that gave you some ideas. And happy 28th wedding anniversary to you too. All right. Thank you for that question. What's up next, Karen? Let's talk about some apps. Isn't there a slogan, there's an app for that? <laughs> Let's talk about some apps. Okay. Okay, this first question is from Kathy. Do you use an app to organize your road trips? It's a bit overwhelming trying to design a route and keep up with lodging and activities we want to do along the way. Okay, Kathy. So in full disclosure, we do not use an app. <laughs> we use our just our heads. <laughs> And We're still sometimes there's knowledge stuck in Karen's brain. <laughs> we have we have a pencil and a piece of notebook. Paper. We don't actually don't have a pencil. We just just Karen just points to the top of her head. <laughs> And I and I know when I'm there because she says we're there. We're still stuck in, in about 20 years ago, but we do know that there are apps for this. And so we would like to sound somewhat professional and suggest to you that you look into the Road Trippers app. I did some research on that. It's the number one app and and it's very highly rated. And none of these apps, none of these things that we're recommending in our podcast they, they don't pay us anything to say this. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. I wish they did, but no. unfortunately they don't. Uh, but with the Road Trippers app, you, you put in your starting point and you put in your destination. And then, so not only does it, it give you a route, but then depending on what you want to see, it will, it will show you hotels along the way, attractions, outdoor places, bars and restaurants, places to camp, shopping, landmarks, all of that. And you can specify which things you want to see. You can save your trips. I think one of the most valuable things about an app like this is it will show you places along your route that you might not otherwise know about. So people don't need us anymore. (laughs) That's right. You don't need our podcast. (laughs) Um, We're now dinosaurs. We were dinosaurs when we started. (laughs) Now we're extinct dinosaurs. Just use the app and you're done. That's right. It will tell you everything you need to know. Uh, But it lists national parks along the way and um, all kinds of other public lands. So it looks great. And please let us know if you do use it, what you think of it, because I think it would be a valuable resource 
I know one thing that disappoints a lot of people, and it has disappointed us in the past, is when we come back from a road trip, and then we realize that there was a really cool place along the way that we missed. But it does give us a reason to go back. That's true. So check that out, Kathy, and I would imagine that would help you out a lot. All right. There is another question. You want to read this one about applications? Yes. This one is from Kelly, and she wrote, I'm really enjoying your podcast, and I love the descriptions and information about the numerous hikes that you've accomplished. I sometimes take a picture at a trailhead, but I have been lazy about noting trail names. To my regret, now that I want to revisit them or recommend them to friends. After listening to your detailed descriptions about hikes, my goal is to do better in this regard. My question is... What information do you record after a hike? Are all your descriptions from your notes or from websites like All Trails? Yeah, so we have a very sophisticated system for this. We just have it stored in our brains. (laughs) And as our short-term memory is getting worse as we age, we have no idea uh, what it was like. And and that's good because we could hike the same trail every day and it would be like brand new. That's right. We've never done this before. Never done this before. Now, actually, that's what we did until we found the Gaia GPS app. That's Gaia, G-A-I-A. And now when we hike, I have the map on my phone. So if we need to reference it during the hike, say, let's say there might be a discrepancy between between the person I'm hiking with and me. <laughs> Never. As, as to which turn we need to take on, on the trail, then I just whip out the map and, and show her, I mean, the person I'm hiking with. Well, that does seem to happen frequently. So with the Gaia GPS app, I can record all of our hikes and then save them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it leaves a breadcrumb, so it'll it'll show our route exactly on the map. It'll show uh, how long it took us, the distance, the elevation gain. Um, a couple of a couple of tips, though, you do want to obviously remember to start recording right when you start your hike. That's easier to remember than. When you're done, stop recording. There's often times when, you know, we're tired or I forget and we've driven and now we're 10 miles away and I've kept the recording on and now that 10 miles of driving is part of the the recording and I don't want that. Now, Gaia does have an interesting feature where they know people do this all the time, so they let you edit your trail to like take that driving off. So you're just capturing the trail Um, The other tip, though, is you want to, when you save that track, just take the extra seven seconds to put the name of the trail on it. Because if you don't, you can just hit, you just hit save and it saves it by date, which you still have everything Mm -hmm. saved. So that's good. Yes. But later, you don't have a name to search for. So I just have to scroll through all of the uh, recordings I have by date. Mm-hmm. and try to pick it out. So if you have the trail name on it, then then you can search by the trail name and, and find it pretty quick. So that'll be your memory for you. Also, that's good for settling disputes with your hiking partner. <laughs> that's right, because you can send that hike that you did, you can send it to anybody so they can see the trail. It's very cool because the information comes up about how far you hiked and the elevation change and all of that. And there were some photos attached to that when you sent it to me. Yeah, that's that's something I'm not as good as I should be, but but take photos, take photos on the trail. Now you take the photo through the application. So when you're in the app, you hit I don't know if it says camera or photo or whatever. It's it's pretty intuitive. 
and then the application uses the camera on your phone to take the picture, but it, it, it attaches that photo to the file that is the recording of, of your hike. And so later you have those exact photos attached to the file and it also shows where that photo was taken along the trail. Mm-hmm. So Kelly, check out the Gaia app and then you'll be able to save your hikes. Send them to your friends and you won't have to just rely on your memory. Yeah, so hopefully that answered your question, Kelly. Yeah, thanks so much for sending that our way. Okay, so that wraps up Mailbag for today. Thank you for all the great questions. If you would like to send us your question, you can email us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. Yeah, and we will be back in a couple of weeks. We're still kind of on summer schedule, so we're doing every other week for a while here. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. That's right. And also, as we mentioned, we will be posting a lot of these links to things we talked about on our show notes. And that is at www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. Hope y'all are having a great summer. 